In our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24 this morning. If you're with us this morning and, and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisle right now and they have Bibles. And just raise your hand so they can see you and they'll be glad to get a Bible into your hands. We want you to not only hear the Word this morning, but also see it with your own eyes. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. We come to what is anywhere you want to look in his life, but here certainly, and, and even in a special way, a very uh, amazing section of Scripture. And as we really get Jesus' priceless insights into uh, what is called the end times or the end of the age. Human history is not going to go on indefinitely in this fallen world uh, as it is. There is a day when God is going to bring an end to that and bring something vastly superior uh, into place. And so here Jesus gives us uh, uh, insights into what will lead up to the establishment of, of his kingdom here in this world. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Jesus said, Therefore, or then, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, run for your lives. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to his house to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. And therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. <laughs> now, great glory, it's great glory. But Greg will be there too, but you can put your name in also if you're a Christian. 
And he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree, when its branches already come to get, uh, already become tender, puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. And we thank you, Jesus, for your revelation here. And we just acknowledge that what you have said here, because you've said it, it must be very, very important to us also. And we just pray that as your word is given to thoroughly furnish us unto every good work, that you would take this passage of your word, and Lord, that you would give it life and application to us, and that it would do in our lives what you know it needs to do in a Christian's life for us to be like you in this world. So we acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge his power, Lord, his ability to teach, his personal knowledge of each one of our lives. And we just surrender to him and help us to hear his voice today through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage is a part of what is known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse, a discourse that is named after the location that Jesus delivered it to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, immediately to the east of uh, the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples were departing the area of the temple in Jerusalem, and as they were departing, the, the disciples stopped Jesus and they began to point out to him the magnificence of the Jewish temple and the greatness of the stones that had been used in uh, the building of it. And, and to them, the Jewish temple built by Herod, it was a temple that was going to outlive uh, the ages. And yet Jesus then declared to them, that not only would that temple be destroyed, but it would one day be so thoroughly destroyed that not one stone would be left upon another. And in less than 40 years, the Roman general by the name of Titus with three Roman legions laid siege to the city of Jerusalem to end the Jewish rebellion there. And by the time they got done with their destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, not one stone was left standing upon the other. Jesus' response to the disciples about the destruction of the temple prompted two great questions from them that are listed there in verse, uh, verse 3. The question, first question was, when will these things be? Referring to the destruction of the temple. The second question, and this is this question that Jesus camps on for his, uh, his Olivet Discourse, they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? Not his first coming, he's there right now but the sign of his second coming and the end of the age. 
And Jesus then went on to declare to them that what was true of that ancient temple, that it looked to all human eyes as if it was something that would outlive the ages, that it would, it would never be destroyed, it would never end, that just as people looked at that temple with that kind of an eye and that kind of an expectation concerning it, he, he said, uh, was in essence saying that what is true of that is also true of this world. Whereas we would look at the great cities of this world, Paris and New York, and you fill in the rest of the blanks, and you look at the engineering behind it, you look at the infrastructure of it, you look at what man is capable of in terms of engineering and art and all of these things, and there's a tendency to look at this world and say, it will never come to an end. What we have built in this world and the world itself, it will outlast the ages. And what Jesus is saying to us to his disciples here and to us, is that the same unexpected end that came to that Jewish temple is also going to come upon this earth. That this earth is not going to go on indefinitely in its fallen condition as it does today. That one day it will come to an end. Jesus will return to rapture his church to be with him in heaven. There will be a seven year tribulation period. There will be a second coming where he then establishes his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. There will be a final rebellion against him and then everything will give way to a new heavens and to a new earth why will this world one day be destroyed in the same way that that temple was destroyed because this present world is built upon the same things that that ancient temple was built upon in Jerusalem and that is rebellion against God and significantly the rejection of his son and then Jesus in verses 3 through 8 declared that the approach uh, of this end is going to be mer marked by birth pangs or contractions that indicate that the end of the age is drawing near. And he described those birth pangs, widespread religious deception, wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom rising against kingdom, famine, pestilence, disease, earthquakes in various places. In other words, we will come to a time in human history where one generation will not look at the next generation and have any hope that the next generation will have it better than they had. Where one generation will look at the world and say, as far as we can see, barring some kind of divine intervention by God, this world is not going to get better and better and better one generation after the other, but that the world will begin to destabilize, it will fragment, and it will unravel morally and spiritually and physically in a very serious way and in a way that scares, literally terrifies the occupants of this world. And when Jesus likens these birth pangs, as we saw last time, to a woman's contractions, and that's what he's talking about, a woman giving childbirth, he isn't saying that these things have never occurred in human history. He's just saying that just as a woman's contractions in the delivery of a child become more frequent and more intense as the delivery draws closer, as the end of the age draws closer, these kind of difficulties are going to become more and more intense. They're going to be 
become so frequent that they will become virtually seamless until it's one crisis upon another and the earth has no relief or no period of respite to even regroup for the next disaster that falls upon it. I'm inclined to believe that verses 1 through 8 have to do with the period in human history leading up uh, to the rapture of the church immediately before the seven-year tribulation period. Because the things that are described in those eight verses are called the beginning of sorrows in verse 8. And then significantly in verse 9, that verse begins with the word then, indicating that something new and different from the birth pangs is kicking in and now beginning. And so what follows that then in verse uh, 9 is a description of the tribulation period itself. All of this is further indicated by the fact that throughout this section, verses 9 through 20, we are clearly on Jewish ground. We are not on Christian ground as we look at this uh, passage. Uh, so Jesus is giving a, a revelation and instruction to Jews living dur in the world during the Great Tribulation. He is not talking to Christians. For example, notice in verse 16, he speaks of those living in the Central Valley of California. No, he doesn't. He, he could have said that, but he, he, has, he has quite a vocabulary, but he didn't. He speaks of those living in Judea that they need to flee to the mountains when they see this abomination of desolation. Judea is a very specific part of the world. It is that area of Israel immediately surrounding the area in the city of Jerusalem. In verse 17, he speaks of him who is on the housetop. Well, in California, we don't live on our housetops. But in that Mediterranean climate of Israel... You go to Israel today and it's just rooftop after rooftop after rooftop where they're growing all kinds of plants and there's furniture and everything on there. It's living space in, in Israel, a person's rooftop. It's considered a part of the house. You notice in verse 20 that Jesus speaks of praying that the abomination of desolation, that it doesn't occur on the Sabbath day. Because what that would do for the Jew, it would limit the distance that they could flee from Jerusalem following this abomination that causes desolation, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And what Jesus is telling the Jews is that when you see this abomination that causes desolation, you are going to want to run from Jerusalem a lot further than a Sabbath day journey is going to allow you to run. So we're not under the Sabbath. We're not under the law of Moses as Christians. So clearly here he's talking about Jews and he's not talking about Christians. Well, someone may observe, well, it sure sounds like they're going to be Christians who are going to be alive and being persecuted during this time as Jesus relates to it in the passage. And it's true. The Bible teaches that many people will become Christians in this world after the rapture of the church and, and during the great tribulation period. You can read all about it in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 17. These people that become Christians after the rapture during the great tribulation, they are known as tribulation saints. I think about, think about the lights that will go on for your friends, your family, your neighbors that know about your faith 
and they, they know a little bit about end times, the things that you've spoken to them about. I mean, there isn't a family member or a friend or whoever that Karen and I know that when that rapture occurs and we're gone, they're going to cease to think that we're the nuts that they currently think we are, and they're going to pillage our house, uh, not looking for any kind of money, but looking for our Bibles and what notes they can find in it. They're going to realize, wow, what they said is true, and people will come to know the Lord as a result of it. Additionally, after the Antichrist accomplishes this abomination that causes desolation, his deception and his abuse of power will become so great and and so strong that the light is going to go on for many people, specifically the Jews, but not limited to them, and they're going to realize immediately that the one that they thought was the Savior of the world was none other uh, than the Antichrist and, and indeed a monster. Now, let's notice uh, what things Jesus said are going to characterize the tribulation period in verses 9 through 25. Let me just say something to those of you who are um, maybe new to church or maybe new to the Bible or maybe relatively new to uh, the Bible's teachings on what are called the last times or the end times. Don't don't get frustrated if you don't understand uh, large amounts of what I'm saying here today, that's a gift I have. (laughs) It would take me six weeks to go through this and explain it all out in detail, and I don't want to do that. So just listen to what you can, absorb what you can, and then it's over time in our Christian walk that this piece comes to play here, and we see how it fits here, and it fits here, and it fits here. It's a big subject. But I trust that there will be something here for each of us today that we will be able to relate to our world and our life today and to our, our, our personal walk with the Lord. So again, verses 9 through 25, let's notice the things that Jesus says are going to characterize the tribulation period. Notice in verses 9 through 10, there will be tremendous persecution and martyrdom of Christians because of their refusal to deny Christ and their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. The Antichrist will um, abuse and persecute anyone that rises up against him during the tribulation period, but he will have, he will be, uh, his greatest focus of his persecution and desire to even destroy and martyr will be upon Christians and upon Jews. Number two, notice in verse 11, the, the tribulation period will be marked by a worldwide spiritual deception. And an awful lot of this is going to center around people, uh, when they see the destabilizing of things, they will run to false religions. But a lot of it will have to do with kind of a false religion associated with the Antichrist himself. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he kind of has a vice president. We talk about the Antichrist, the Antichrist, the Antichrist. I use the term Antichrist basically because that's the word that the culture uses to describe the Antichrist. But in the Bible, he's never referred to as the Antichrist. The biblical name for the Antichrist is the beast. And the beast has a right-hand person, a vice president, so to speak, known as the false prophet. And the false prophet is able to do tremendous miracles and signs and wonders. 
And he is going to be able to wow the whole world into thinking, man, only God can do things like this. And uh, all of these signs and wonders will be done in a way that draws people's attention to the greatness of the Antichrist in the same way the genuine Holy Spirit in our age works in such a way to draw people's attention to Jesus Christ. The whole end times thing is the Antichrist will be possessed by the devil. It's a, it's a demonic trinity. You've got the devil, you've got the Antichrist, and you've got the false prophet. A counterfeit Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is the way that it will work. And the Bible says that uh, in Revelation chapter 13 of this deception that occurs because of the ability of, of the beast to do these miracles, so they, speaking of the world, worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him. They will be wowed by him. Verse 12, we're told that lawlessness will abound to such a degree that law enforcement and armies will not, militaries will not be able to maintain a semblance of law and order during that period. We're told in verse 13, many will lose their love for Christ, but those that continue uh, faithful, they will be saved, that is, physically delivered from uh, all of the problems of the great tribulation at, at Jesus' second coming. And then notice in verse 14, the gospel will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all of the nations, and then the end will come. The 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists, they will uh, be a part of this evangelizing of the world for Christ during the tribulation period. They will be specially anointed and protected for that. We know in the book of Revelation that at least one angelic being will make the gospel known to the entire world during the uh, tribulation period with a warning not to take the mark of the beast during the tribulation uh, period. And, and so uh, all of this evangelism will occur in the midst of the nightmare of the great tribulation. And then in verse 21 we're told that this great tribulation period is going to be worse than anything the world has ever seen in its entire history. Which is saying a lot for students of history. You think about the plagues, you think about the war, you think about the death and the devastation this world has seen. We are a generation that has just come out of a century that's seen two world wars that meant the death of tens and tens and tens of millions of, of people, casualties. We don't even think about casualties in those, in those numbers anymore. In other words, the, the horror that will be on the earth at that time ultimately will be unimaginable. In fact, Jesus said in verse 22 that if Jesus did not bring an end to all of it at his second coming, not one living being would survive. That's not just talking about human beings. That's talking about animal life, life. If he did not come, does not come back in his second coming, things will become so degraded, so violent, so fierce, such an abomination in that tribulation period that if he did not come back, no life would survive it. It's a terrible thing that's going to unfold. Jesus then, in verses 23 to 31, went on to describe his second coming. In verses 23 to 27, that his second coming won't be a secret affair. 
like His first coming was, born as a baby in Bethlehem, but that at His second coming will be lightning that goes across from the east to the west. In other words, the whole world will know that He has arrived on the world scene at His second coming. Verse 28, He declared that just as vultures gather to eat or to judge uh, so to speak, a rotting physical corpse, so too Jesus will return to judge the moral and the spiritual corruption of the world at that time. And verse 29, his second coming is going to be preceded by great signs and disturbances in the heavens. So if you don't like lightning storms and you don't like to see stars like whipping around and falling all over the place, you need to get saved today. It's going to be a mess during the tribulation period. His second coming, verse 30, we're told, he tells us, is going to be a very, very powerful, a very awesome event. And interestingly enough, it's going to be accompanied by great mourning on the part of people when they see him. The mourning that comes with realizing, and specifically of the Jews, of realizing that, yes, we did reject you. As the promised Messiah, we recognize you now as the promised Messiah. And our hearts are broken not only over what we've been through because of that rejection, but because of the disrespect that it showed to you. And we acknowledge and recognize that you always were and you are the promised Messiah. Zechariah chapter 12 verses 10 through 12, he prophesies of this on behalf of the Messiah where he says, And I, speaking of the Messiah, will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication at his second coming. And then Messiah says, And then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as, he, as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And in that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. And then notice in verse 31, after returning, Jesus will then dispatch his angels throughout the world to gather together his elect. And the elect, the elect are those who have trusted in Jesus during the tribulation period, and they have survived the horror now of the great tribulation. Jesus will gather them together in preparation for the kingdom age. Now, this morning I want to look specifically and take a special notice in verse 15 of this thing that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. Now, for those of you who are new here to this church and those of you who have even been here for a while, that did not constitute my introduction. Say, if that was the introduction, what's the body of this message going to be? Should we order pizzas or what? So... I want to, but I want to lay all of that and look very specifically, though, at this, this one thing that might appear that I had skipped over it. In verse 15, Jesus speaks specifically of an event that will occur during that seven-year tribulation period 
referring to it as the abomination that causes desolation. That phrase is referred to multiple times in the Bible, once in Daniel chapter 9, once in Daniel chapter 11, again in Daniel chapter 12, and here in Matthew chapter 24. The event is also described in great detail in Paul's uh, second epistle to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 2. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2 gives us tremendous insight into this event. And this, and this is what the Bible declares is going to occur, what this abomination that causes desolation is. It centers upon a man, uh, again known popularly as the Antichrist, a leader who will ultimately rise up, uh, as the leader of a new world order, a final world ruling uh, empire centered in uh, old, the old Roman Empire, namely Europe. The Antichrist will be a man. I mean, he will, he will be a mere man. He will be a descendant of, of Adam and Eve. But he will be a man who will be controlled by the devil himself. He will be possessed by the devil himself satanically empowered, satanically directed. It is a terrible thing. It is a horrible thing for an individual person to be possessed even by a demon. But the Antichrist will not be possessed by a demon or even a high-ranking demon. He will be possessed by the devil himself going to be controlled by the purest evil imaginable. I think that most people tend to think that the Antichrist is going to be easily uh, recognizable. He'll have this kind of wild demonic look in his eyes. I mean, he'll wear shades and when you take them off, he takes them off, you'll notice that, you know, his pupils aren't round. They're kind of horizontal like a wolf, you know, or something like how the movies put him or something. Or he's just going to be openly and, you know, recklessly demonic and everyone will look and say, this must be the Antichrist, or that he'll have like business cards, Alex, uh, the Antichrist, and we'll know, wait a second, did you see his card? But, but actually, for the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, He's going to be amazing. Sometimes we look and say, wow, when the church gets raptured, aren't they going to miss us? Yeah, for about five minutes. He is going to come on the scene, and He is going to lead the world, powerfully lead the world, into a period of material prosperity and blessing like it has never known before. He will be majestic in His presence just what emanates off of him, the power that he's going to have, his abilities of persuasion. You can take all of the great leaders in human history, all of their skill as, as orators and their uh, ability to lead, and you roll them all together, and they're not going to approach this man's abilities. Sometimes I watch the news and I read the newspaper and I read all these articles that talk about President Obama's uh, oratory skills. I'm not impressed. Nothing against him. But I, I get, I've just listened to too much good preaching. 
You take, you take men with, with a great theme and a great passage whose whole lives are bound up in that passage and they speak for God. Now that's oratory for me. That's preaching. That's someone who's got a great message and their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength is engaged in that. What you're looking for is a guy like Hitler, times a thousand. You watch the old clips of Hitler. He's a monster. I know. It's terrible to use him for an example. But here was a guy that could mesmerize a nation. He could mesmerize a world. He could take a crowd and just and manipulate them like clay in his hands. He had all of the things that he wanted to say. He had a charisma about him that was undoubtedly demonic. He's going to look like a punk compared to the Antichrist. He's going to look like a second grader compared to the Antichrist when he comes on the scene. When this world sets their eyes on the Antichrist, listens to his ideas, they're going to be totally and completely intoxicated by his charisma and his ideas. And his physical presentation is going to be extraordinary. His power over people will be supernatural. And through him, Satan is going to come to the world as an angel of light. Sometimes we think that when Satan possesses somebody, that it always manifests itself in the fact that that person will begin to fall to the ground and begin to writhe on the floor. That's not how he always comes. He can't come that way. The Bible says he's at his most dangerous when he comes as an angel of light. And the Antichrist will come as an angel of light. And during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, for anyone to suggest that he's even bad, let alone demon-possessed, is going to make you, people consider you to be mad or candidate for an insane asylum. And significantly we're told that the Antichrist is going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And we know that from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 that the Antichrist is going to make a covenant for seven years with the Jewish people and that he is going to allow them to return to the offering of their sacrifices and their offerings to God. And you can't do that without a temple. He's going to let them build a temple to, to do that. So initially, he's going to appear as if he's a friend to the Jews. But then at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the midway point of that seven-year tribulation, that covenant that he makes with the Jews, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant with them. He's going to commit an abomination that will make the newly rebuilt temple corrupted or desolate, hopelessly defiled, and this is what is known in the Bible as the abomination that causes desolation. At that three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation period, he will walk into the very holy of holies in that rebuilt temple, he will sit down in that space that is reserved for God alone and represents the very presence of God. He will sit down in that holy of holies and then he will demand that the whole world worship him as God, both Jew and Gentile. And so the abomination that he does here, and, and as he declares himself to be God, demands to be worshipped as God, it completely then defiles the rebuilt temple. And at that moment, for the Jews in Jerusalem and in Israel and all around the world, it will be like a wave that goes across their hearts and their minds. 
The morning that he does that, it will dawn on them immediately, instantaneously, all simultaneously, every Jewish heart in the world is going to sink when they realize we have been totally deceived into thinking this man was our Messiah. And thus Jesus warns in this chapter, verses 15 to 22, that when the Jews see this, they are to run for their lives. Israel today is completely set up for this deception. Since the Jews recaptured the old city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount back in the war of 1967, they have longed to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. In fact, many Jews and religious Jews are considered a positive command that they, they rebuild this temple. They look at the law of Moses and they said, God has given us offerings and sacrifices that we're to be offering up to God. We don't have a temple to do that. They consider it that they are obligated before God to rebuild this temple. To so say, why don't they just do that? Because though Israel has control of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is under the control, with Jewish permission, under the control of Muslims. Because the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today is the site of two of Islam's three most holy sites, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock Mosque. When Israel took East, uh, Eastern uh, Jerusalem in the 1967 war from the Jordanians, and they recaptured the western wall in the Temple Mount, they had a problem on their hands. Because now what do you do with the Temple Mount that's in our hands? And what do we do with these uh, holy sites for the, the Muslims? Because they knew if they blew them up and, and, and destroyed them in any kind of way, what would, it would unite the entire Islamic world and they would come together. Now you're talking about bi hundreds of millions of people, over a billion people, unite together, attack Israel to retake Jerusalem. So they realized on a physical level that they weren't able to engage the Islamic world in that way. So they were content with what they were able to gain, and that is the east, eastern uh, Jerusalem, and then leave the Temple Mount under the control uh, of, of the Muslims. And, and so that, that's why it sits in the place that it sits today, and yet the Jews want to build their temple there. Somehow the Antichrist, he, he will delight the religious Jews and he'll do so by finding a way for the Jews to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount, probably without disturbing the existing Muslim mosques. And I think it, here's the scenario that, that is very likely on that. We looked a few weeks earlier at Russia and Muslim nation allies that will join them in a, a, an attack against the nation of Israel. An attack against Israel that Israel is not going to beat back that invasion. You, you don't read through the whole passage that Israel got its army together and its air force and, and they got out there and they, God supernaturally steps in and absolutely devastates not only the invading armies, but he devastates the nations that dispatch those invading armies. And at that moment in time, if the rapture of the church occurs right before that invasion, in, invasion that invasion occurs, 
It, Russia is set back on its heels by so decisive a, a defeat. The Islamic world is set back with tremendous casualties and, and other problems set back. Very easy for the Antichrist to then come on the scene at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, and he will come on the scene at the beginning of the Tribulation period and say, listen, you folks invaded them, you're wiped out. I'm going to allow the Jews to build their temple on the Temple Mount and nobody will squawk about it. All of it can fit together so, so easily. I, it, when you go to Israel today, one of the fascinating things to do is to enter into discussions with, with Jewish people. And it's, it's a blessing on a lot of levels and it's heartbreaking on some levels uh, also. And one of the things that's really frightening and, and amazing is that when you talk to a religious Jew there and you get on the subject of Jesus or the subject of the Messiah and you ask the religious Jews, because you know they've, they've, they've rejected Jesus, how they're going to identify their promised Messiah, they will almost uniformly declare he will be the one who allows us to rebuild our temple. That's how we're going to recognize uh, him. The Jews do not believe that Messiah, when he comes, will be divine, as Jesus declared himself to be, in spite of the fact that the Old Testament scriptures said that when Messiah came, he would be fully God and fully man. They reject that. They believe, the, they believe that the Messiah will be a great and charismatic man and leader who will allow them to rebuild their temple. So, that and many in Israel today believe that the Messiah is coming very, very soon. Several years ago in Jerusalem, on one of the trips to Israel that we took, they had banners all over the old city in Hebrew that said, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. I have a coffee mug in my office that came from that same period of time, and it says on it in Hebrew, Messiah is coming. And Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming soon. But unfortunately for the Jews who have rejected the true Messiah, the Antichrist is going to come first, and they will think that he is their promised Messiah. And of this coming deception, Jesus declared to the Jewish religious leaders of his day that their rejection of him as the true and the promised Messiah would lead, leave them vulnerable to this very deception of believing one day that the Antichrist himself is their promised Messiah. John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus said to them, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Speaking of the Antichrist. And one of the most sobering statements of Jesus in all of the Bible. Once you have rejected the true Messiah, all you're left with now are false messiahs. When you reject the truth, you make yourself completely vulnerable to a deception. And so the Jewish people have, by and large. But it isn't just the Jews who are going to be deceived by the Antichrist. Europe will be deceived by him. The whole world is going to be deceived by him. Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who receive no kingdom as yet, 
but they give authority for one hour, a short time in human history, as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. It is both amazing to me and horrifying to me in a sanctified sense to watch the entire world being set up for all of this right before our eyes today. Is our nation and the whole world increasingly rejects God, the God of the Bible, rejects His definitions of right and wrong, rejects His definitions of good and bad, and then replaces it with their own definitions as our nation and other nations around the world become more and more hostile toward the institutions of God that are designed to produce stability and holiness and safety in a fallen world. The rejection of the institution of marriage as he defines it. The rejection of the God-given institution of family as he defines it. The rejection of the institution of the church and faith in God as He defines it. As you undermine these things that bring stability to this fallen world, then the inevitable consequence is that you destabilize the world at its very foundation, not at its periphery. The world must, as a result, begin to fragment and begin to unravel. And the more that the world rejects God, the worse things become because only God and His Word, His definitions of right and wrong, His institutions can hold this big fallen mess together. No nation in this world, not even the whole world put together, has the wisdom or the power or the wealth to do what God alone can do in the human condition. No nation in the world, not even the whole world put together, has the wisdom or the power or the wealth to replace God and do His job in this world. And as the God-rejecting world increasingly fragments and as it increasingly unravels because it is unwilling to look at the problems for what they are at their core, moral and spiritual problems that can only be rectified by repenting and turning to God and because they don't want to give up their definitions of right and wrong and the sins that their new definitions are designed to protect despite the terrible consequences of the new definitions, the unavoidable consequences of the new definitions, their solution then is will be and is increasingly to look to government to fix all of these problems. So their solution in the last days will be to look to government to fix all of this. Their solution will be more and more government 
And number two, government that is empowered far beyond what is healthy. Government is an institution of God, but it is never designed to take the place of God in this world or to become an influence for evil in this world. If you reject God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad, and you reject His institutions of marriage and of family and of church, then you're going to need all the cops you can hire and more. You're going to need all the prisons you can build with every dime of taxpayer money you can get, and you won't be able to keep up with the demand and the casualties of man's so-called wisdom. And you're going to need more laws and more laws and more laws to try and bolster the existing laws. And then when you enact those laws, because society is unraveling in increments of 45, 48 hours at a time, you will then have to add laws to those laws and laws to those laws. And if you're going to undermine God's institutions of marriage and family and redefine it, then you're going to need public schools to not only be a learning center, but also then to take the responsibility of also parenting these children of these new definitions, the victims of these new definitions, and the breakdown of the family unit. And you see all of that every day before your eyes in this nation and in this world. Until government is now attempting to do in this world what only God can do and what only God was intended to do. And worse, until government has a place in people's lives that should belong to God alone. And then one day, it will seem like a very small thing to turn the whole thing over to a very charismatic leader who promises to fix all of the problems in the world. And what will look like the answer to man's rebellion against God is going to produce a literal hell on this earth. Jesus closes all of this with his parable of the fig tree in verses 32 through 35. And he uses an agricultural uh, illustration that they could all understand. He said, you've all seen fig trees. Spring comes, you begin to see those leaves begin to come out of the branches and you see them protrude. And you know when those leaves are coming out in the spring that, that summer is going to follow that spring very, very quickly. And he's saying, so too, when you see all of these birth pangs getting closer and closer and, the, and more and more intense, and you see how easily a great charismatic leader could rise up and take advantage of people's unwillingness to be saved and to follow Christ, when you see how the world is being conditioned for it, then realize that the second coming of Jesus is very near and that the rapture of the church is near still. And then Jesus, in this context, bets his entire veracity, his truthfulness, his character on the truthfulness of what he's just said. 
lest you think he's crazy or people who speak for him are crazy like me. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the future of the world that you and I live in. I pray for revival. I hope for revival. I'd love to see one more great ingathering in our nation around the world. But I don't have control of that. And you don't have control of that. What you have control of is your soul, your life, your mind. You have control of who you make your Savior, your Messiah. You have the ability to enter into the truth and thus protect yourself from the lie that's going to come upon the whole earth. And I don't even have to tell those of you who keep up with the news and the trends. It is astonishing. People my age and older, we can't believe what we're seeing in our very own country in terms of the development of the group thought. None of this is far-fetched to us any longer. And I know you understand that. It's a time to get to a place of safety. And that lone place of safety in this fallen world is a faith in Christ. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that personal relationship with Jesus and then be spared the horror of all that Jesus is talking about here. And instead be led into the greatest life a person can live in this life and the life to come. In the meantime, I have no intention of sending all of you away depressed. All of these signs, all that we're watching develop before our very own eyes, is not intended to send us to doctors for medications necessarily. But to be a strong reminder to us to be busy about God's business at this time in human history and to realize as we read these things and we watch these things unfold on a daily basis in the news and all that our God is in control of this world and we're on the right side of Him in Christ Jesus. He's got the whole wide world in His hands. So an encouragement to us to keep looking up our redemption, our Redeemer, is drawing nigh. We're going to see Him face to face very, very soon. And in the meantime, let's stay busy about His business and allow His Holy Spirit on a daily basis to conform us into the image of Christ so that as we live for Him in this world, in this hour in human history, our priorities will be Christ's priorities. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the glimpse that your word gives us into the future, and especially these words of our Savior. And as he says, heaven and earth is going to pass away. We believe that. And we also believe that your, His Word is never going to pass away. And we're thankful to be on the right side of His Word. We pray for each person that sits here today, now standing, that doesn't know you, that they will hear something of your Spirit's voice in all of this. 
recognize something of this in the world in which they live, Lord, and with godly fear come running to you for salvation found in your Son. We pray that, Lord, you would bind up every spirit, every past experience, every self-pressure or self-focus or absorption or self-consciousness. Remove all of it, Lord, from every single person's life that doesn't know you and give them that supernatural ability to say yes to you today, Lord, and yes to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to live in this world, have this insight that you've given us through your word, and to be able to process the headlines of, of the newspapers every single day and not read what's on the ink, Lord, or on the web page in front of us on the computer, but we're able to read it in one sentence that our Redeemer is drawing nigh, our redemption. And we thank you for that hope today. Thank you for our Jesus. Thank you for the hope that is found in him, the life that is ours because of him. We give you praise from this place today for it, Father. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.